zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Zorro, the Gay Blade, released July 17th, 1981. It was written by Hal Dresner, based on a screen story by Hal Dresner, Greg Alt, Don Moriarty, and Bob Randall, and characters created by Johnston McCulley, Directed by Peter Medak, produced by Melvin Simon, and released by 20th Century Fox. What's a screen story? It's a story. That you write for the screen. Oh. <laughs> there you go. But, like, how? I just don't understand some of these terminologies because, like, what. Sometimes they say story, sometimes they say screen story, sometimes they say inspired by the events of. Yeah. Yeah. It was like uh, I was watching an episode of The X Files recently, and, it, and usually it says written by Chris Carter. But this time it said teleplay by Chris Carter. And we've had a couple that were like, suggested by. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Implied. <Yeah>. What? <laughs> Vaguely referenced by Chris Carter. Zorro, Spanish for Fox, is actually one of the oldest IPs we've dealt with outside of ancient Greek mythology or medieval legend. <laughs> Predating even Charlie Chan, who though conceived the same year, 1919, wouldn't appear in a published work for another four years. The only older character I could come up with was from our Patreon reviews of Dracula films, as Bram Stoker's famous vampire is actually 22 years older than Zorro. As a literary character, obviously, Dracula's hundreds of years old. <laughs> but but you're saying that it doesn't include mythological things? Because we, uh, we have our muses from uh, Xanadu. Yeah, I'm saying outside of, of ancient mythology or oh, okay. medieval legend. I see. Which gets me Excalibur and okay. that stuff out of the way. Fair enough. You just wiped away a whole bunch of movies we watched. <laughs> right. But there there might be other ones. Clash of the Titans. Yeah. Clash of the Titans. Yeah. Uh, Image of the Beast. <laughs> Ancient mythology. Sure. Do you recall the last time our protagonist's name was a foreign translation of the word fox? A foreign translation? Sea wolves. No, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty recent. Oh, God. Uh, fox and the Hound. There you go. Todd was the Middle English word for fox. Okay. That was, <laughs> that was just an educated guess. I didn't yeah. actually remember that. Wasn't that educated? <laughs> Pulp writer Johnston McCulley created Zorro, secret identity of Don Diego Vega and later Don Diego de la Vega, as a sort of Robin Hood of pre-statehood Los Angeles, protecting the common people from corruption and tyranny of authorities, but descended himself from a wealthy landowning family. In most incarnations, Zorro is a wanted bandit with a bounty on his head, but beloved by the people. Or the pipple, if, if you will. <laughs> the pipples. From the beginning, Zorro has dressed in the iconic black cape, black hat, black mask, and riding his trusty black horse tornado. He often leaves behind carvings of the letter Z as a calling card, scratched into walls and furniture by way of his expert swordsmanship. Does he also have a whip in any of these incarnations? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. He made his first appearance in McCulley's The Curse of Capistrano, a five-part serial in All Story Weekly magazine, originally intended as a standalone story, but the popularity of its feature film adaptations spurred it on to a total of five novels and 57 short stories, all by the same author. Zorro was not based on any specific historical figure, but he's often associated with Joaquin Marietta, the Robin Hood of the West, whose exploits as an outlaw serving the people have little to no basis in reality. Though he was fictionalized in an 1854 dime novel by John Roland Ridge, and later as a character in the first Antonio Banderas Zorro film, which also features characters based on the real-life Captain Harry Love and Manuel Garcia, a.k.a. Three-Fingered Jack, who are both believed to have encountered the real-life Joaquin Marietta. Yeah, it's very... Uh, I was talking about my uh, talking about this very fact with my niece. Yeah. Because uh, when the Mask of Zorro came out, I kind of went through a deep dive of like who are these people? Because it's like, oh wow, yeah, this guy really existed, and he really did put that guy's head in a jar. Yeah, 
What? Didn't you say one of these people was killed like on the Conejo grade here? Um, well, yeah, I, uh, I know that members of that gang were killed all over California and the, yeah. the surrounding areas, but yeah, like one of them was supposedly killed in around here. Right. But in the mask of Zorro, Joaquin Marietta is Antonio Banderas's brother mm-hmm. and his mm. head was cut off and put in a jar by Harry Love, uh. who is the guy trying to find who will become the new Zorro. But you're saying that this original guy wasn't really... The, there's the, not a lot of the proof. people's hero yeah, like everyone's, there, yeah okay. there's proof that he stole a horse and that captain harry love was sent to retrieve it from him and to kill him for it um but no, no the, proof that he was a good guy yeah in any not way. not okay. much <laughs> but he did cut off his head and put it in a jar and then toured the country with it yeah and there's right. you can find flyers like on the oh, wikipedia page Jesus. there's flyers of oh we're exhibiting joaquin marietta's head today One year before the Curse of Capistrano's publication, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks were all similarly frustrated with their bosses at First National Pictures and Famous Players Lasky. They hired a private detective when Chaplin's brother suspected a nefarious scheme was afoot. What they discovered was that the biggest production companies were all planning an industry-wide merger to lock in their contracted talents. In retaliation, Chaplin, Pickford, and Fairbanks joined forces with D.W. Griffith to found United Artists. In 1920, as one of their first projects, they selected Macaulay's Zorro story for a silent feature film adaptation starring Fairbanks as the titular hero. 20th Century Fox would remake the film 20 years later with Tyrone Power in the lead. More than 40 films have been produced over the years, including another Mark of Zorro remake starring Frank Langella in the mid-70s, this film, and the two most recent adaptations, The Mask of Zorro and The Legend of Zorro, directed by Martin Campbell and starring Antonio Banderas, which borrows a bit from this film with a protagonist taking over the mantle of Zorro from a predecessor. In the case of that series, it was Anthony Hopkins playing the previous Zorro. Correct. And he was Don Diego, and mm-hmm. Antonio Banderas is playing the brother of Joaquin Marietta. The character was also the center of multiple TV shows, most famous among them a Disney series in the late 50s starring Guy Williams, as well as a radio series, comic books, and video games. There's Zorro video games? Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Zorro's influence on almost all major hero characters of the 20th century cannot be overestimated. So far, we've seen the creators of Superman and the Lone Ranger credit Zorro as an inspiration, but obviously the similarities to Batman cannot be ignored. They both dress in black, they're both independently wealthy, living in mansions that their fathers built with secret caves that operate as the headquarters of their secret identities. Their backgrounds are so intertwined that in Frank Miller's celebrated 1986 take on the character, The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne's parents were leaving a screening of 1940's The Mark of Zorro when they were killed. In fact, in Todd Phillips' 2019 film Joker, which takes place in 1981, the Waynes are killed after what looks like a double bill of Blowout and Zorro the Gay Blade specifically. Oh, really? Blowout, of course, being next week's film. Yeah. The first draft of tonight's film was entitled Zorro the Comedy Adventure, and later Zorro with an exclamation mark, on the way to being called Zorro the Gay Blade, though in Australia it was released as Zorro Swings Again. Honestly, I think I like Zorro with an exclamation mark best. Mm -hmm. I like Zorro the Gay Blade, (laughs) because it feels old-fashioned at the same time as being a sort of meta joke on the content. Yeah. But Zorro with an exclamation mark is like, Zorro! Yeah, I like that too. That's oh, funny. I actually thought it was going to be written out. Zorro with an exclamation mark. Oh. <laughs> no. No, you didn't. Early in production, it was reported that Zorro's parents would be played in the film by Fernando Lamas, father of renegades Lorenzo Lamas, and Sylvia Christel from Private Lessons, but these scenes were stripped from the film before production began. It was reported in various articles that John Carradine, Martin LaSalle, and Vernon Dobcheff were cast in unspecified roles, though none of them ended up in the film either. It performed quite poorly, landing a slot in Rolling Stone's famous Big Bucks, Big Losers article at the end of 1981. Did this actually cost a lot of money to make? Yeah, and it didn't pay for itself. Oh, no. The film starts with a dedication. The film is dedicated to Ruben Mamoulian and other great filmmakers whose past gives us our future. Mamoulian was the director of the 1940 Mark of Zorro, which this film is vaguely implied to sequelize. Then we are entreated to a clip of the 1940 film with narration from voice actor Frank Welker. In the late part of the 18th century, the peasants of old California were oppressed by tyrannical landowners. To protect the poor and downtrodden people, there emerged a mysterious swordsman who pledged his life in the service of justice. To the people, he was a great hero who would live forever in their hearts. 
to the landowners, however, he was a real pain in the ass. Under the narration, we see Zorro riding his trusty steed Tornado into town and scratching a Z in the back of a man hanging a wanted poster, and we fade to black. The title appears in gold leaf over red satin sheets, and we see inserts of a whip, a saber, a mask, leather gloves, and a black hat. We get a title card on parchment paper, the house of Don Diego Vega, Madrid, Spain, 50 years AZ, and then in parentheses, after Zorro. We see an enormous mansion, and the camera pushes through fluttering curtains to reveal Don Diego Vega, as played by George Hamilton, and a woman in bed professing their love for each other. She asks if she's a good wife, and he tells her in so many words that she's an excellent one. Then why doesn't my husband ever say that? Because he's not intelligent. He is not intuitive. He is not insightful. And he is not in Barcelona! The husband bursts in on them, carrying a sword, ready to fight. Garcia, I am astonished you would enter my house without my permission. I might say the same thing about you and my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Garcia chases Don Diego around the room. He evades Garcia's sword swiping long enough to reach his own weapon, whilst bragging that he is still in his prime, and further, that he could capably fight four men as skilled with a sword as Garcia, at which point Garcia admits that they can test this theory because he's invited his five brothers to the fight. When Garcia calls for them, the five brothers, dressed in identical outfits with coats and top hats, appear from four separate doorways and the balcony to surround Don Diego. Did I, uh, I say uh, four? <laughs> what an arrogant braggart I am! <laughs> <laughs> Every line is going to get a laugh in this whole movie. At the same time, he capably fights the men back when his servant, Paco, busts into the room with a letter. Paco is mute and so must perform charades to read the letter out loud to Don Diego during the sword fight with the five brothers. The letter is from Diego's father, inviting him home. He tosses his sword to Garcia's wife and then jumps off the balcony into a waiting carriage. He waves his servant Paco down as well and they tell the driver to take them to Los Angeles, California. Keep in mind they are in Madrid. So that's going to be a long trip, assuming they took the Bering Strait across to Alaska. (laughs) Seemingly the following morning, Don Diego and Paco arrive in L.A. Los Angeles, California. The birthplace of me. (laughs) (laughs) His smile here is great. The delivery of this line really has to be seen to properly be appreciated, but I love everything Hamilton's doing for the entire film. Zorro the Gay Blade was released hot on the heels of another Melvin Simon-produced George Hamilton vehicle, a semi-parody Dracula film called Love at First Bite, and I watched that in preparation for this, but it's actually pretty awful. George Hamilton's okay, and Richard Benjamin's in it, and he steals every scene he's in, but the story kind of sucks and it goes nowhere. But this one is a lot of fun. Don Diego is disappointed not to be met with any kind of celebration. Ominous music plays as another carriage rolls out of his childhood home into the courtyard. He locks eyes with the passenger, Esteban, a childhood friend of Don Diego's, played by Ron Liebman. Esteban gestures to his epaulets and informs Don Diego that he is now Captain Esteban. Another passenger leans out of Esteban's carriage, and it is Florinda, played by Brenda Vaccaro, the object of their rivaling childhood affections. She is ecstatic to see Don Diego, and he compliments her beauty. Esteban informs Don Diego that he and Florinda are now married. So our long rivalry for her highness is over, huh? Again, I congratulate you. No, this time I congratulate you. (laughs) Florinda pulls Don Diego aside to tell him how boring her life has been here in Podunk, Los Angeles. Paco sneezes and drops a few of Don Diego's things, and Diego takes the moment to introduce his mute servant. Esteban makes another joke at his wife's expense, suggesting she try to learn muteness from Paco. Florinda lets some details slip, and Don Diego wonders aloud where his father is, and why Esteban seems to be the new alcalde, or as he corrects, acting alcalde. Esteban breaks the news that Don Diego's father has passed away. Your father, I'm sorry to say, had a terrible accident. Accident? See, he was out riding when his horse was frightened by a turtle. When the tortuga. See? Evidently he fell, sustained an injury, and later died. But Esteban assures him that the turtle was later executed before sending Don Diego and Paco (laughs) on their way. Importantly, Returning to their carriage, Florinda chastises Esteban for such a dumb fake excuse, suggesting that a turtle did not spell his father's fate. But we never elaborate on that. They just leave it at the turtle story. Is it implying that he had something to do with it because he wanted I would think so, yes. 
I also love that Brenda Vaccaro makes no attempt to affect an accent. Right. She's just speaking. She's just talking like, in Brenda Vaccaro voice, yeah. which is basically Eileen Brennan voice. They're very similar yeah, actresses. Yeah. We cut to Don Diego standing outside his father's admittedly fancy mausoleum overlooking a valley. We get another parchment title card that reads, The landowners meet to elect a new alcalde. All of the major Californian landowners introduce themselves to each other. Don Diego from San Fernando. Don Francisco from San Jose. Don Fernando from San Diego. Don Jose from San Bernardino. Luis Obispo from Bakersfield. <laughs> Which is a fun little California joke, even though it doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> Thomas Baker, for who Bakersfield is named, did not arrive in the region until 1863, 23 years after the events of this film. And Bakersfield itself was not incorporated as a city until 1873, another decade later. Yes, but when did it become a punchline? Immediately, Immediately yeah. in 1981. <laughs> Esteban takes the men on a tour while pitching himself as the next alcalde. They pass a prison where one of the local peasants is being stretched out around a wheel. That man was three pesos short in paying his taxes. I can assure you that he will never be short again. Presumably because he will die in this torture, or if he survives, be noticeably taller. Mm -hmm. In a flash, the landowners have all nominated and approved Captain Esteban as the new alcalde. Esteban turns to Don Diego to apologize for this shocking turn of events, but then one of his men announces that the people have been gathered for his inauguration, implying that he obviously had all this planned. As Esteban addresses his people, a new carriage rolls up and Don Diego spots a woman inside. This is Charlotte Taylor Wilson, as played by Lauren Hutton. Esteban informs the city of Los Angeles that he intends to follow in the footsteps of the princes of India, collecting his weight in gold as a monthly tax. A peasant in the crowd informs him that they almost can't afford taxes as they are. How will they survive paying more? Esteban claims he doesn't make the rules, even though he clearly just made this one, <laughs> wishing to appear as a man of the people. Charlotte climbs out of her carriage with a stack of flyers over her arm and encourages the people to join the 13 colonies of the East as a part of the United States, with leaders elected by the people, not the greedy, blood-sucking tyrants they currently serve. Don Diego is particularly interested in what she has to say, and when she drops her flyers, he collects them for her. She tells him that she is with the People's Independence Committee, and he tells her that he is one of the greedy bloodsuckers that she just warned the peasants about. She warns him about the changes to come and stretches a metaphor to its breaking point. But a new wind is blowing across this land. It is the wind of independence, and it carries aloft the bird of freedom which will drop the egg of democracy on your head. <laughs> Don Diego tries to assure her that the Pipples are happy here without her democratic eggs. Though she claims to represent the lower class, Don Diego points out that she must come from money. Since she can afford an inn for the night, she's dressed in fancy clothes and smelling of sweet perfume. None of that sheep oil stuff, though through his accent she mishears sheep oil as ship oil. You mean the oil from boats? No, ship oil from the ships in the field. What ships in the field? You have never heard of the ships in the field? The little, uh, Baba Vaz? <laughs> <laughs> she informs Don Diego for apparently the first time that he has a very thick Spanish accent, but he doesn't believe it. Weirdly, though, when he accuses her again of being rich, his voice is suddenly 80 yard without the accent. I am not very wealthy. After all, but poor woman can afford three names. Answer me that if you can. Senorita Charlotte Taylor Wilson. She tells him that she may have inherited a small sum, but she intends to help the people and not simply preen about. That night, Paco is shining Don Diego's shoes when the innkeeper arrives with a coffin on her back from his father and a note in her hand that just arrived for him. Poro Consuelo, you didn't have to come up all those stairs and carry that to me. Let me take it. And he retrieves the small note from her hand, but leaves her to lug the coffin around the room, advising her to put it anywhere, but then changing his mind to near the window and later beside the dresser across the room. Again, he forces Paco to pantomime the letter. It's an invitation to a costume ball celebrating Esteban's election. Before she leaves, the innkeeper says that Don Diego's father asked her to deliver the coffin and that its contents had something to do with Don Diego's destiny. Inside, he finds every piece of a Zorro costume, and the back of the coffin is lined with a 1,000 peso reward poster for information leading to his capture. Don Diego opens a letter addressed to my son 
from inside the coffin. Not my son, but it says my son on it. My dear son, I do not call you by name because I do not know which of you two brothers will be the one to read this. But whoever does inherits the greatest gifts I possess. This sword with which to fight injustice. This mask with which to deceive tyranny. And this hat which needs reblocking. Wear them with honor. For in time of need, it is the destiny of the Vega men to become Zorro. <laughs> reblocking joke just killed yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looked fine, though. Yeah. We dissolve to Don Diego dressed in the full getup and ready for the costume ball. He calls for Paco's opinion, and Paco appears dressed as Rolf the dog. <laughs> but Paco thinks he's dressed as a bear, and for some reason Don Diego thinks he's dressed as a duck or other animals without fur. Uh, I will allow you that you are a, a pig, but that is as far as I will go, that's all. Paco pouts for a moment until Don Diego admits that it's a fine bear costume, and they're on their way. Another parchment title reads, on the road, a poor peasant in trouble. An old man on a farmstead begs another man on horseback to have mercy on him and to leave some money for him to provide for his family, but the old man is kicked to the ground. On their way to the party, Don Diego and Paco cross paths with the farmer, who tells them that this man has taken everything he has. Don Diego is excited to fulfill his destiny and catch the bandit. Zorro, which is how I will refer to Don Diego in costume moving forward, locks swords with the bandit while they ride horses down a path, but both are clotheslined by a tree branch. The fight continues on foot, and during a brief pause in the sword fight, Zorro claims that he has stopped on purpose to give his opponent time to practice. When he has bested the man, Zorro tells him that he will spare his life if he promises to spread the word that Zorro has returned. He carves a Z in the bark of a nearby tree. Have not struck dead in your heart? Oh, but, but, but I'm new to the region. <laughs> I like after he learns it, he's like, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Zorro races back to the farm and tosses the old man a bag of coins, only to learn that the man he just took this satchel from was the local tax collector, legally within his right to collect the money from the farmer. When the farmer asks his name to pray for him, Zorro first verifies that the man is not new to the region, <laughs> and then that he's aware of local legends. <laughs> when the man confirms both points, Zorro scratches a big letter Z in the farmer's front door. You recognize that famous sign, huh? Oh, yes, senor. It is a number two. That is not a two. That is a Z. Oh, if you say so, senor. But in the school, that is how they teach my granddaughter to draw a two. Well, I say it is a Z. What else? Zorro! Zorro! Oh, Zorro! The farmer has a much stronger reaction to the word Zorro and falls to his knees to praise the return of the long-absent Zorro. Spread the news that he is back to help the helpless, to befriend the friendless, and to defeat the feedless. <laughs> <laughs> Zorro and his bear ride off to the costume ball. Outside the party, Charlotte Taylor Wilson addresses a crowd speaking of the local income inequality. She is approached by a pair of Esteban's guards, but they're interrupted by the arrival of Zorro, who suggests they unhand her as he intends to escort her inside. I do like that he even specifically announces that he's not here as a bodyguard and that he's sure Charlotte can protect herself. Right. But he, he offers himself as an escort to the ball if she's interested. And she accepts the invitation, so they move inside. Unfortunately, Paco is separated from Zorro at the door and not allowed entry. Inside, Zorro introduces Charlotte to Florinda, and Charlotte continues brazenly handing out flyers about Californian independence. Florinda calls to a contingent of guards to drag Charlotte upstairs and put her in a costume because she's ruining the party. <laughs> like she just has extra costumes upstairs for people that are being insubordinate. Outside, the old farmer and his granddaughter show up to inform the people that Zorro has returned. Florinda leads Zorro around the party. Across the ballroom, the tax collector informs Esteban about Zorro's return. The collector suddenly notices Zorro and points him out to the alcalde. Esteban and Zorro are quickly engaged in a sword fight. I actually watched the 1940 mark of Zorro to prepare for this, and I have to say the sword fighting in that movie is completely insane. It's so fast and so competent and so well shot. Like, it's all wide shots, so you mm -hmm. can see all the movement. In this, we're cutting around a lot, so the actions have room to not be 
especially skilled mm-hmm. in sword fighting. But Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone are extremely well practiced. Yeah, well, Basil Rathbone is was a professional fencer. Yeah, they, they both were convincing as like Olympic fencers to me because it's just incredible how quickly they're moving, and it's not sped up footage. It's just they're just rocket speed the whole scene. Zoro starts jumping from table to table while Esteban swings away at his legs, succeeding only in decapitating the candles lighting the banquet. Florinda sobs because her party is being ruined. <laughs> she, she like peeks out of a doorway. How's my party going? <laughs> <laughs> and then just backs away and closes the door. Outside, the people are chanting for Zoro. Once he has bested Esteban, Zoro slices away at the alcalde's clothes until his pants are around his ankles. He shouts for his men to capture Zoro, but Zoro escapes effortlessly. On his way out, he apologizes to Charlotte that they never got the chance to dance, and Zoro is standing on a balcony upstairs when Charlotte calls up asking his name. Conveniently, he pushes open the shutters, and the chanting of people outside answers her question. But who are you? And the smile on George Hamilton's face here is just this childish giddiness. He's so excited that people know his name and they're already celebrating him. Instead of leaving gracefully, though, Zoro accidentally falls off the balcony and lands foot first on the fountain below, twisting his ankle. Esteban and the tax collector witness the injury and assume they can identify Zoro tomorrow by his limp. It's like a Cinderella story, but yeah. not <laughs> yeah, the shoe. Yeah. <laughs> the glass slipper would have just shattered on the fountain. Oh, God. Like <laughs> his bones. <laughs> Later that night, Don Diego, because he's out of his costume, lectures his lumpy foot. What, are you stupid? I could have told you, you're not going to make that jump. But no, you got to be a hero. Suddenly, Florinda has a ladder leaned against the balcony to his room, and she's climbing up to visit. She's upset with him for missing her party, but at least Zorro was there. Don Diego points out that if it's the same Zorro from 50 years ago, he must be at least 85 by now. I think implying that Don Diego's father is the Tyrone Power Zorro. Florinda also mentions how Zorro embarrassed Esteban. Ah, well, with Esteban, there's so much material to work with. That's exactly what Zorro would have said. It's a very Zorro-esque remark. (laughs) I just love that line from her. Don Diego helps her over the balcony, and Florinda finds her way to his bed. She confesses to Don Diego that she and Esteban only have sex 12 times a year, but for some reason all in the same night. Don Diego is impressed that Esteban can manage 12 times and asks if there's some sort of dietary secret, but Florinda just says he eats a lot of garlic, meaning that she can't possibly be enjoying that night. (laughs) Florinda admits she made a mistake marrying Esteban over Don Diego, and just then, Esteban arrives downstairs. Well, there's there's a great moment when she asks... Don't you get lonely in this bed? Is like, well, sometimes Paco has nightmares and I let him sleep with me. <laughs> <laughs> Desperate for somewhere to hide Florinda, Don Diego pushes her into his father's coffin. Esteban is here, I guess, to get advice from a friend? Yeah. He says that Zorro interrupted his inauguration ball, but that he suspects it may have been a fake Zorro. A fake Zorro? What did he look like? Well, he was... Your height? You're weird. You're coming. Esteban asks his friend Don Diego to stand and walk a moment to prove that he hasn't injured his foot in the way that Zorro has. Zorro goes through with the test and smiles through all the pain. You should call him Zorro. He's not in his costume. Don Diego goes through with the test and smiles through all of the pain. Skipping and running and jumping in place. Skipping and running and jumping in place. Skipping and running and jumping in place. Esteban tries to convey his frustration with Zorro by stabbing through the coffin, and Don Diego is immediately concerned, pressing his ear to the stab wound to listen for the survivor inside. He tells Esteban that it is simply a rare antique of his father's. Do you recall the last time we saw someone stab through a coffin with a live person inside? That's right. (laughs) No idea. No. The Funhouse. I still don't remember that. Don't it was remember during the magic all. show. He calls for a volunteer and then he stabs her in the heart and then it turns out it's his daughter. Oh my God. Is there a doctor in the house? Wait, wait. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my charming daughter, Carmela. I don't no. remember that at all. Oh I don't. <laughs> Do you guys listen to this podcast? No. <laughs> My terrible temper! My wife says it will be the death of her. You'll be right. 
Don Diego notices his mask by the door and quickly snatches it up and pretends to wipe a mirror with it as Esteban prepares to leave. With Esteban gone, Don Diego opens the coffin to find Florinda is okay, squeezing to one side of the coffin with enough space in front of her breasts for the sword to have passed harmlessly through it. Florinda, you're not hurt! Thank God for small favors! She says, cupping her breasts. The next morning, Don Diego practices sword fighting with Paco, wearing a homemade cast. Paco plays dirty and steps on his foot. In the town square, we see a poster that reads, Reign of Terror enters third week. No relief in sight. Future floggings forecast. We get a montage of Esteban torturing more and more peasants. Don Diego can only watch through his fingers, disappointed in himself. Don Diego complains to Paco that he feels powerless, as though he's disappointing the ghost of his father, when suddenly a visitor arrives on horseback, a navy man with a powdered face and parasol. Don Diego doesn't recognize him until he gets a hint. Know me? Sink me! We were once roommates. Roommates? Don Diego finally recognizes his own twin brother Ramon, who now goes by the name Bunny Wigglesworth after serving overseas <laughs> in the British Navy. Bunny. Like Bunny B-U-N-N-Y. Wigglesworth. Yeah. Bunny. Which reminds me of Bunny Breckenridge, which is the Bill Murray character from Ed Wood. Oh, They're very yeah. similar characters, even. That's true. Apparently, they haven't seen each other in 20 years since their father sent Bunny away to learn manliness in the Navy. It's honestly heartwarming how Don Diego is completely unfazed by his twin brother's transformation and new name. Yep. I can't believe it. My brother's just so different. <laughs> Always with a huge smile. I guess I haven't mentioned it, but obviously because these characters are twin brothers, I should say they're both being played by George Hamilton, but he's practically unrecognizable as Bunny Wigglesworth. It's true. I actually didn't realize it for a while. Yeah. I was like, who's this other character? Well, <laughs> and, and the way they have the, uh, the scene set up, like it's really convincing. You don't you don't see that line. Yeah, they they uh, they they stage it really well so mm-hmm. that when it is a split screen, that it's not an obvious one. Yeah, they're making completely different faces though, and have very different voices. Uh, it's it's actually an impressive performance, I think. Bunny says that he wants to pop in and say hello to their father. Apparently, not having gotten the news yet, and we get a surprisingly sad line from Don Diego here. We better ought to freshen up to say hi ho to the old gent. Tell me, is he still as loud as ever? No. The last month he's been very quiet. We cut back to the mausoleum on the hill, and Don Diego has given his brother the letter from the coffin to learn about their destiny as co-protectors of the people of Los Angeles. Don Diego asks his brother to take over the mantle while he recovers from his foot injury before Alcalde tortures all the townspeople to death. Bunny is hesitant to go along with the plan since he uses a whip and not a sword. Don Diego pleads with his brother, accidentally deadnaming him but quickly correcting himself. They head back to their home, where Bunny does up half of his face in Zorro makeup to try on the character. Don Diego is not convinced and shares a criticism with Paco. Daddy, so something wrong with his bowels. My what? Your bowels. The way you say your eyes, your e, and your jaws. I don't think you realize it, but you have a very bad acid. In one incredible shot, Bunny faces off screen left with blonde hair and suggests pitching his own voice down and affecting a Spanish accent as he slowly turns to face off-camera right with black hair and a painted Zorro mask and speaks in Don Diego's voice. Help, help. The alcalde's got all my money. Don't you fear. El Zorro is here. Besides DNA, the only thing Don Diego and Bunny Wigglesworth have in common is an incurable smile, and it's also very contagious because I can't help joining them every time. (laughs) Do you recall the last time somebody only did half of their makeup in one way and half of their makeup in another? It's got to be fade to black, right? Yeah. (laughs) The Dracula. Bunny agrees to play the part, but needs to imbue the character with his own personality. Another parchment title, The Tax Collector at Work. We see the tax collector manhandling peasants one at a time as they pay their taxes for the month. Suddenly, Zorro's shadow appears on the wall, wielding a whip. But when he leaps into the scene, he's dressed in all purple. Exact same costume, just dyed plum. Zorro whips a sword out of the tax collector's hand, and it seems to actually be George Hamilton wielding this whip. In place of his brother's letter Z calling card, Zorro whips his full moniker into the wall. (laughs) Z-O-R-R-O, grinning like a madman the whole time. I'm impressed that he made the O with just two strokes, honestly. But it worked out. (laughs) Later we see the tax collector reporting it to Esteban. And he wore what? Plum. He wore a fruit? No, Excellency. He was dressed entirely in plum. Everything matched. 
And he talked it differently from the first time he rubbed me. Yeah? He sounded like a... The alcalde slaps him for his homophobic slur. Another caballero rushes into the room to announce that he too has been robbed by Zorro, this time dressed in banana yellow. When a third caballero enters the room, Esteban thinks he sees a pattern already. Something terrible has happened! I know, just tell me what he was. <laughs> Green! Like a lamb? Like an avocado! Aha! Two fruits and no vegetables! Actually, the avocado is a fruit, Excellency. I know, you're right. Uh, two fruits, one vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> when Luis from Bakersfield enters, he claims Zorro was dressed in red like a rose. Weirdly, though, the fourth caballero says that Zorro also wore green, where you would expect orange or blue. Esteban promises to capture the multicolored bandit, but demands in the meantime that the caballeros pay their share of taxes out of pocket to make up for what was stolen, and they don't seem excited about it. At this point, my, own, my only real like serious criticism of the movie has been Ron Liebman's very loud scenes i love everything ron liebman's doing really yeah uh, I, I i just i couldn't stand all the shouting no it cracks me up every <laughs> time it, he gets allowed do you have some uh, ptsd from up the academy oh yeah <laughs> say it again but he was also the best part of that movie by a long shot and had the good sense to take his name out of the credits before it came yeah. out Luis Obispo even suggests they should hold a new alcalde election and esteban shouts to his guards to point guns at all of his guests Another sign in Town Square reads, El Zorro returns, pledges peasant protection, colorful costumes captivate crowd, Alcalde angered, Dawn's disgusted. We get a quick montage of the titular gay blade saving the day in a bright blue outfit. And remember my people, there is no shame in being poor, only dressing poorly. The crowds love him, and he pays a visit to Charlotte, staying at the church. He hands over a satchel of money he's stolen from the tax collectors. Charlotte compliments his style and courage, and even makes the point that he seems especially comfortable with himself, and she admires that. This movie is surprisingly progressive. Extremely progressive, I yes. feel like. Yes. If this came out today, people would be like, what is this woke bullshit? They wouldn't have done this in the 80s. <laughs> it's true. like, uh, they did. She tells him that she would do anything asked of her, and Zoro suggests they go shopping sometime. <laughs> the, the only, like, mildly uncomfortable part. She throws herself at him, and he retreats into the night. Perhaps next time. Back at home, Bunny admits to Don Diego that Charlotte offered herself up to him. Don Diego is not angry, but envious. Esteban arrives again, and Don Diego instructs Bunny to hide. Esteban notices Don Diego's cane and asks if he's been injured, but Diego picks it up and reveals a hidden sword inside to defend against this Zorro character running rampant in the city. He slashes at a candle with his cane sword and seems to miss, but when Esteban mocks him for it, Diego reveals that he has sliced the candle in two pieces without it falling over. The same joke appears in the 1940 mark of Zorro during a fight in the alcalde's office. Esteban informs Don Diego of his new plan to lure Zorro out in the open. He will kill a peasant every day until Zorro <laughs> presents himself. Esteban shows Don Diego the new wanted poster they'll hang in the village square. It reads, for information leading to the capture of Zorro, a reward of 200,000 pesos. Basically identical to the wanted poster that his father had in the coffin, but with a reward 200 times larger than his father's. Don Diego is flattered by the drawing, even though it's the same drawing from his father's poster. Yeah. Esteban seems certain, again, that Don Diego must be Zorro based on his resemblance to the poster. Because it's, it's the eyebrows, like the yeah. perfectly curled <laughs> like eyebrows. Like the Batman hook eyebrows, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he asks Zorro to act out various homosexual stereotypes, like swinging his hips, speaking effeminately, or flapping his wrists limply. Say something like a sissy boy. Something, something like, like a, a sissy, sissy boy. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Alcalde seems satisfied by Don Diego's performance, but quickly he notices a man sneaking out the back door in an orange cape. Don Diego claims this is his brother Ramon, a padre who was invited to rest at his home. Ramon, by the way, is the name of the villain in that first short story, The Curse of Capistrano. Esteban asks the padre about his bizarre outfit, and he claims to be a follower of Peter the Dressmaker, who was Christ's tailor. The three of them pray together that one day soon Esteban will encounter this Zorro once and for all. Bunny asks Alcalde to pray for exactly 10 seconds, which gives him enough time to sneak away before Esteban even looks up to see that the Padre was actually Zorro the Gay Blade, dressed in orange and having stolen Esteban's horse. Esteban is livid at having been tricked, and we cut to another parchment title card. I don't really understand this, though. Like, what? If you're like, hey, 
that's my brother. And then yeah. the same one, the same guy just said, hey, I'm Zorro. Wouldn't you be like, your brother Zorro? That's not the only time that happens either in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. But like, I don't know d- why he's not in trouble he for never, it. Yeah, he never calls him out for it. We just yeah. go past this yeah. moment like, oh, you didn't know that this guy wasn't your brother or your brother is Zorro. Like, those are the two conclusions. Oh, the other option is, oh, I thought it was my brother, but apparently it was Zorro in disguise. Yeah, okay, well. Which is the excuse he makes next time when this happens again. Yeah. Florinda asks Esteban for another masked ball since he and Zorro rudely interrupted the previous one, and Esteban thinks it would look bad with everyone starving outside. Surprisingly thoughtful of this character, but then he notices an enormous bejeweled necklace around his wife's neck and decides that it would make the perfect bait for Zorro, and they can throw the party anyway to lure him here. But that hasn't really been Zorro's MO, stealing jewels, but whatever. He reminds Florinda of their dirty dozen agreement, and she seems to think he's inviting her to the night of sex, but then he drops her on the floor in the middle of the ballroom. We still have three months to go. The hall is immediately redressed for a party, and everyone sports their costumes. The tax collector is dressed like a Roman soldier, and Esteban is dressed like the King of Spain, complete with a massive gut. He reminds his guards to keep an eye on the fancy necklace that he expects Zorro to try to steal. As he briefs his guards, he tells them that Zoro's not just going to walk in here and say, here I am. He's not just going to walk in here and say, here I am. Here I am. Ah, Santa Maria. <laughs> Esteban <laughs> screams in his face and orders his men to arrest Zoro. He tears off Zoro's mask to reveal Don Diego beneath. Diego explains that he received a letter asking him to dress this way for tonight's party. Right on cue, Second Zorro arrives with a big gray beard, and somehow Esteban falls for it again. One at a time, Esteban walks around the room, unmasking each of the landowners, and every time believing for just a moment that they are the actual <laughs> Zorro. No, except Luis. <laughs> somehow, even after that, he falls for a fifth and final Zorro. Zorro. <laughs> Party guests flood in dressed exclusively in Zorro costumes. Esteban is certain that Zorro would not pass up on this opportunity to embarrass him. Just then, Don Diego arrives with his cousin Margarita Wigglesworth, who we can clearly see is Bunny dressed in drag, hiding most of her face with a small fan. Esteban seems immediately infatuated. He drags her to the dance floor and asks permission to address her as Wiggy. <laughs> He tells Wiggy how hard his life is, especially because of El Zorro. Wiggy is familiar with the character and even shares a poem she has heard. Ode to a bandit. His clothes are bold, his mind uncanny. Give him your gold or he'll whip your bandit. (laughs) Florinda is annoyed at the four guards surrounding her while she moves about the party. She finds Don Diego and complains to him that she can't get close enough to anyone to show off her new necklace. Don Diego tells her it looks expensive enough to pay for the needs of the people, like schools and roads. And Florinda shares a sentiment we'll hear later in the 80s from Dr. Emmett Brown in the Back to the Future series. Roads? What do the people need roads for? They never go anywhere. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. Back at their table, when Esteban tries to make a drink order for Don Diego's cousin, (laughs) he begins his request by saying, For Margarita! And the waiter hears, four margaritas and leaves (laughs) when margarita is introduced to florinda she accidentally spills a drink on her dress the two retreat together to the ladies room florinda is happy to be without her four guards as she enters this is one place you can't go with me but i can (laughs) margarita offers to help dry florinda's dress and we cut outside the bathroom where esteban is coming to a realization your cousin is not a woman Margarita finally manages to sneak the bejeweled necklace off of Florinda before she leaves the ladies' room. Esteban notices the missing jewelry immediately, but Margarita is nowhere to be found. Somehow, Don Diego isn't even in trouble for pretending Margarita was his cousin because he claims to have been fooled himself. (laughs) How could I have been so deceived? You, I promise you to take him on a picnic. Later that night, Bunny hands over the jewelry to Don Diego and prepares to set sail for England. 
Bunny informs Don Diego that Charlotte only has eyes for him and that he should go after her. He also says that if Esteban wants to write me, he can, but only if he's serious. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bunny leaves on horseback and we dissolve to Charlotte and her flyers standing beside the fountain in the waning hours of the night. She can't seem to hand out flyers to anyone. They're just ignoring her. Here, you throw this away. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Zorro steps out of the darkness to speak with her. It's the all-black Don Diego Zorro, and he drapes Florinda's necklace around her neck. They kiss passionately beside the fountain, and she faints. When she awakens, she calls him Diego. You know it's me? Yes. How long you know? (laughs) For the start, I think. At first, I thought there were two of you. She tells him she loves him in spite of his wealth, probably because she is also wealthy. A child rushes up to call for help from El Zorro, and as he and Charlotte part ways, we pan left to reveal a peasant has overheard their conversation by the fountain. Another parchment title. Paco overhears some important news. We cut, as the title would suggest, to Paco overhearing a conversation between the eavesdropper and Esteban. He says that he saw Zorro give the necklace to Charlotte, but apparently didn't hear when Charlotte said Zorro's name, which I thought was the problem here. Yeah. Esteban's plan is to hold Charlotte hostage to draw Zorro into his trap. All the, all the meanwhile, they're walking past these really high up windows. Yeah. And you just see Paco jumping up into the air to try to hear the conversation <laughs> at each window. It seems the peasant turned in Zorro expecting the 200,000 peso reward for information leading to his capture. I prayed for a small room of my own. Your prayers are answered. Lock him up in solitary! We cut to Diego sitting at a table and plucking petals from a white rose, announcing with each one, She loves me, she loves me, she loves me. Paco arrives and pantomimes his warning. Esteban, Esteban's men uh, have gone to, to arrest Charlotte Wilson, Santa Maria. We cut to a courtyard where Charlotte has been arrested. Florinda thinks this is a waste of time because Zorro would never risk his life for that, as she puts it, skinny blonde puta charlotte is tied to a post in the courtyard his soldiers line a path and esteban tries to address the crowd but is interrupted repeatedly by the drummer boys of his military force do you wish for a blindfold she refuses and spouts a few more freedom metaphors Esteban is dragging things out to allow Zorro the chance to crash the proceedings, and when he hands a coin to a padre to pray for Zorro to arrive, he notices the padre is wearing a black leather glove. Where's answer, Zorro gets a knife blade to Esteban's throat, and Esteban is only excited to have been right that he would come. The soldiers raise their guns to aim at Charlotte. Not them. No. I know you would not kill an innocent man. Me either for that <laughs> I love that line. At the last second, Zorro offers himself in her place, and Esteban stops the gunman and presents Zorro to the crowd as a captive. When he moves to unmask the bandit, Zorro requests that they conduct this part in private, and everyone seems to accept it. Esteban accepts the condition to prove to the people that he's not completely heartless. They release Charlotte and tie Zorro to the post. Even as he is sentenced to death, Florinda can't help but admire his style. Marvelous. He wears clothes well. I could never get into his pants. I bet I could. The leader of the guard reads the charges against Zorro as he is tied to the post. He is sentenced to be executed to death, which seems redundant. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's like hung till dead. I think it's yeah. supposed to be. Similar. But hung till dead makes more sense because people sometimes survive getting hung, but you don't survive getting executed because that yeah. means you died. That's fair. You are sentenced to be executed until you are dead. Charlotte cries out to Zorro that her only regret is that he will miss out on an independent California, and he is unimpressed. How come she don't say, I'm going to love you forever? How come she don't say that? (laughs) (laughs) Esteban realizes with seconds to spare that he's standing in front of the firing squad he's directing, and as he moves behind them, Charlotte adds that she will, in fact, love Zorro forever, and a huge smile takes over his face, when suddenly another voice fills the square. Two bits, four bits... Six bits a peso. All for Zerto. Stand up and say so. <laughs> the gay blade arrives on the courtyard wall in a shimmering golden Zorro outfit. Bunny, as a second Zorro, is here to save the day, 
and whips away all the gunmen before untying his brother. Together, the brothers fight off the rest of the guards, and the crowd is getting riled up. Quickly, the peasants overtake the guards, and the Alcalde's forces are surrounded and outnumbered 20 to 1, but Esteban still hasn't accepted defeat. Guards! Arrest everybody! The last of them finally turn on him, and Alcalde and Florinda are at the center of the crowd with swords pointed at them. Esteban thanks Florinda for not abandoning him, and she finally does. Later, near their father's mausoleum, we get another goodbye scene with Bunny as he rides a horse off to the horizon. Charlotte announces it is her next mission to try to increase the number of voters in the nation, hinting, I thought, at an early women's suffrage movement, but it turns <laughs> out she just wants to have a bunch of his kids. <laughs> Looking into it, though... I found that in 1776, New Jersey granted voting rights to women for the first time. But in 1807, the rights were limited again to white men. But they would obviously not be granted to all American women until 1920, so Charlotte would undoubtedly not live to see it. Don Diego promises Charlotte the biggest wedding she's ever seen. As they ride their horses away from camera, we hear Charlotte suggest that he donate his land to the town and move to Boston with her. In the distance, smoke rises from the landscape, probably because the production couldn't afford to pay the locals not to burn their farm waste that day. We fade to black, and a Z is painted across the screen, followed by the word end, <laughs> to be read Z-end. <laughs> a sequel was briefly planned, but because of the film's net losses, they were ultimately scrapped. Which is a shame. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have a weird thing about this movie, is, like, I, I was very entertained by it, um, it rem- had you seen it before it has been a very very long oh. time um my my parents frequented this movie yeah and uh but the the style of comedy very much reminds me of Yellowbeard. yeah yeah uh it, it's just it's a very loose plot with a lot of just weirdly cobbled together sometimes seemingly improvised scenes that don't really each scene on its own is kind of like a little bit of a bit yeah 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 and I mean that's good comedy writing. In yeah, general. yeah. It's just yeah. sketch, sketch, sketch. Yeah, and so uh, it was like, yeah, I can see like because I've shown Yellow Beard to a lot of people, and they're just like, eh. <laughs> I feel like this is the kind of movie where where people who saw it when they were kids would come back and just absolutely love it. Yes, but I didn't see it as I'd kid. never seen it before, I and it. I fell in love with it instantly. <laughs> like this cracked me up so much. I didn't realize until this movie that I love George Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I love him. I he is couldn't so tell great. you what he was in before this movie. Yeah. I'm like, I know who he is, but why do I know who he is? I have no idea. He just radiates this happy energy the whole mm-hmm. time. And it just you just are completely enamored by it from frame one. But I also like that none of the jokes are really like victimizing anybody. Like yeah. this this movie could have gone some poorly aged places and yeah. it really didn't. Every mm-hmm. joke is very good hearted. Yeah. And and it's just rivals making fun of each other most of the time. But the love between the brothers is consistent throughout. Yeah. yeah. They only care about each other and they're both very skilled sword fighters. Like neither one of them is a better Zorro. Like they're both very talented at what they were doing and mm-hmm. they're both there to help the people. Yeah. And and just like we mentioned before, like he's just uh Diego is very accepting. Yeah. Like doesn't doesn't question it, doesn't like like bring up bring it up. It never it never becomes yeah. a con- it's just like, yes, this is my brother and this is who he is. It's and, just uh, so refreshing after everything we've seen <laughs> in yeah. the last two and a half years of this podcast. Um but it was it was really wonderful. Yeah. I, and I loved it. And the jokes are are funny. They're solid oh, jokes like with really laugh good punchlines. Like laugh out loud funny. Yeah. Like I I laughed consistently through this movie. Uh for me like there are just kind of like moments where there's almost too many jokes and <laughs> yeah. and and I miss some of them. Yeah. And uh That's what this podcast is for. Yeah. <laughs> walk you through every single joke. Yeah, it, I was like I was like, "Oh man, like I I haven't laughed in a while it was because I was laughing and I missed something that they said. <laughs> yeah. I needed longer to recover." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I almost wanted, because uh, we didn't have captions on this right, version, yeah. and I'm like, I wish I had captions, because I think I'm only getting half of the jokes because of his thick accent. Yeah, <laughs> I do think a lot of the comedy of it is the accent, and the way he performs it, with this like extreme happy energy in every line, but he's just so fun and so funny the whole time. And and Bunny is funny the whole time, and and Ron Liebman kills me. I know, I know the volume control bothered you a little bit, Yeah, but- when he gets really loud is when I'm laughing the hardest at him. I, I felt, I just kind of felt bad for him. Like, man, it's like, how many takes did you have to, I know. Did you have to project that? Well, yeah, but that's like, 
that's his thing too like he did the same thing a couple times in up the academy last year where he just got really loud for his punchlines. yeah and and he just gets to this pitch that just kills me he's so funny so thumbs up thumbs up for sure yeah yeah it's a thumbs up and and i didn't think it was going to be because i you know it's like when you started it or remembering it and coming back well I, i was so young when i had seen it um so i really didn't remember anything oddly enough the thing i remember the most was the number two th- joke yeah like not not the number two is in poop i mean like yeah. where he carves the z and that he, is and how he, the teachers tell my daughter to yeah. write the number two that, that's the only real joke that i remembered that occurred in the movie um but rethinking about it w- before we watched it i was like sort of the gay blade over us oh this is gonna be rough yeah like this is gonna be like super homophobic yeah yeah, yeah. and and just like just laying into it really thick and it's not going to have aged well but it it's the exact opposite i i feel like it was really progressive for its time uh i mean nowadays like you know people might poo poo it and say it's it's very stereotypical but i don't know in the 80s i think that this was a bold i don't even think by today's standards that this did anything like drastically offensive i mean i'm a cis white guy so it's not fair for me to say that yeah but it seems to me that that there's not a lot here to take issue with in terms of the portrayal of the characters because this this might be one of the first like because he's essentially outed like yeah. he, he says that esteban can write him letters if he's serious about starting a relationship with him which to me means that he's admitting there that it's not just you know the old-fashioned use of the word gay in the title mm-hmm. and this is a hero character who just saves people who only yeah. appreciate it. No one is ever mocking him. His brother is fully accepting of him, and he's very confident in himself mm-hmm. to the point that other characters are commenting on how comfortable he is in his own yeah. personality. He, he's confident and competent. Right, yeah. yeah. But uh, so many of the lines aren't even technically jokes, but just the way that they get delivered kills me. Like specifically the one I was thinking of is when he opens up the coffin and Florinda's like squeezed to one side and he goes, Florinda, you know heart. And it's just, <laughs> I laugh so hard at that. And it's barely it's a, joke, a joke, yeah. but it's just, uh, he's so excited and he says it in such like a weirdly happy way. Um, but it's really great. I really liked this movie. What are we doing letterboxed? So I put it at number 20 out of 94. 94 yeah 94 yeah so i have it underneath uh the hand and above american pop all right richard uh i have it at number 30 uh which puts it just below caveman but above the hand okay um i have it in 16 which is just under polyester and just above history of the world part one our director here was peter medak he directed the changeling last season so basically the same movie as this uh, he also directed Species 2 and, more recently, an episode of Breaking Bad. The writer and story credit went to Hal Dresner. That was the screen story credit. He's an uncredited writer of Cool Hand Luke. He wrote a couple MASH episodes, a 1973 Catch-22 TV movie, which I actually want to check out. It has Richard Dreyfus as Yosarian and Dana Elkar as Colonel Cathcart, ah. which is the Martin Balsam character from the one that we talked about. And also, it features a live-action appearance from Frank Welker, who appears as a voice in this film uh the other story credit went to greg alt who his only other credits are for a series called hercules recycled which seems to edit together old hercules movies to form (laughs) a parody film okay (laughs) uh don moriarty also hercules recycled for story credits uh and then the last story credit was for bob randall whose novel was adapted into the fan earlier this season (laughs) so that's another (laughs) weird uh total disconnect in terms of the content because that was a a thriller like a hitchcockian thriller and this is not the music here came from ian frazier he has uncredited work on hopscotch but otherwise it's mostly television stuff the main zorro theme in this film comes from max steiner's score for the adventures of don juan starring errol flynn which isn't even a zorro movie yeah (laughs) though errol flynn was considered for the part that went to tyrone power in the 1940 film uh it's weird like uh, I always think of this song, though, from the Goonies. Oh, sure. Uh, because Sloth is watching a movie and they're playing the song. But I don't think it's Don Juan. I it might it's... be It might be a, another just reuse of the same stock y- song. Yeah. Uh, I think the movie that he, Sloth is watching is called The Seahawk. Oh, okay. Um, which is another Errol Flynn movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but then, like, it plays again uh, when he's, like, 
chunk and sloth are sl- sliding down the yeah. the canvas of the sail. <laughs> I was like, so that, like whenever I hear it, it just I just immediately go to sloth and chunk. That scene, and it plays a lot in this movie, so you're probably very reminded yeah. of Goonies. Cinematographer John A. Alonzo, he was the DP on Vanishing Point, Harold and Maud, Chinatown, Bad News Bears, and we've also covered his work on Tom Horn and Backroads so far. He later lights Overboard, Steel Magnolias, Cool World, and Clifford. George Hamilton played Don Diego Vega and Bunny Bigglesworth and Margarita Bigglesworth. And Zorro. (laughs) As I mentioned before, this was right on the heels of a comedic turn as Dracula in Love at First Bite. He would later show up as B.J. Harrison in Godfather 3, Dr. Halberstrom in Doc Hollywood, and Dick Bennett in Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, which is another really great movie. Uh, Lauren Hutton played Charlotte Taylor Wilson. She was Aggie Maybank in Gator. She's in Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which gets a mini-sode this season. She was Michelle in American Gigolo last season, and she's back this year as Jenny Lofton in Paternity, reuniting with Gator co-star Burt Reynolds. Brenda Vaccaro played Florinda, she was Shirley in Midnight Cowboy, Eve Clayton in Airport 77, Kay Brubaker in Capricorn 1, and Bianca in Supergirl, yeah. which I think is Richard's favorite. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite, Brenda Vaccaro. Uh, we saw her as Monica Gilbert in The First Deadly Sin last season. She also provides the voice of Ardeth, Jay Sherman's ex-wife on The Critic. Valerie Perrine was initially cast in this role, but a SAG strike pushed back production of her previous film, The Border, which we'll get to in 82. The delay of Zorro the Gay Blade forced Vaccaro to drop out of her next scheduled film, Chanel Solitaire, which won't get a regular episode from us because it didn't get a wide American release. Ron Liebman played Esteban. He's Sidney Hawkeiser in Where's Papa, Merch in The Hot Rock, and Paul Lazaro in Slaughterhouse-Five. We saw him last season as the best and only redeeming part of Up the Academy, uh, which he asked to take his name out of. Say it again. Mine, sir. Say it again. Mine, sir. Say it again. He was also a psychiatrist in Garden State, and he's Rachel's dad on Friends. Fun fact, co-star Brenda Vaccaro actually played the mother of Joey on Friends. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed a film starring two actors who played the parents of two lead characters of another 90s sitcom? Oh, God. (laughs) I hate these. It was was pretty recent. No, it was recent. It was... um... Seinfeld's dad? Seinfeld's dad and Elaine's dad were and both Elaine's in. Elaine's dad were in. Arthur. Arthur is go. correct. We got there. <laughs> Liebman's final credits on IMDb are for playing Ron Cadillac on Archer, husband of his real-life wife, Jessica Walter, as Mallory Archer. The two met a year after this film's release when they were set up by Brenda Vaccaro <laughs> and married a year later. Donovan Scott played Paco. He was Castor Oil in Popeye last year. He's credited as Deputy in Back to the Future 3, and he's Leslie Barbara in the Police Academy movies. He was also a neighbor in The Incredible Shrinking Woman earlier this season. James Booth played Velasquez. We've seen him so far as John Baker in Cabo Blanco and Paul Rossini in The Jazz Singer. Helen Burns played Consuelo. She was Leah Harmon, the medium in The Changeling last season from the same director. So the woman carrying the coffin around is the right, one right. summoning the ghosts in The oh, Changeling. God, that scene is so haunting. <laughs> Clive Revel played Garcia. He was kickback in the Transformers movie. We also heard his voice as the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back last season. He was also MacGyver's old war buddy Tony in DOA MacGyver. Carolyn Seymour played Dolores. She was in some deleted scenes from Bad Timing last season. She also provides the voice of Mon Mothma in a bunch of Star Wars games. Mm -hmm. This was her first movie. Eduardo Noriega played Don Francisco. He was a general in High Risk. Jorge Rusick played Don Fernando. He was Zamora in The Wild Bunch and Pit Boss in License to Kill. We also saw him as the minister in Cabo Blanco earlier this season. Dick Balduzzi played Old Man. He was a fisher in Kelly's Heroes, or Fisher, someone named Fisher possibly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think it would be Fisher Man if he was fishing, so it's probably a person. We've seen him as Phil in Fatso and as one of the guys installing the neon sign in The Postman Always Rings Twice. Paco Moreta played Ramirez. He was Flock in Caveman and Cellmate in High Risk. These are all movies that shot in Mexico, so this mm-hmm. all makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I was going to say, there's a scene in this movie where he's Esteban is in like a at a dining table yeah. in this really low ceiling dining room. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like I've seen this room before in another oh, movie, and I and I tried to find it and I couldn't. Yeah, maybe something from Cabo Blanco. 
Moreta returns to play an Undertaker in the 98 Mask of Zorro, and Don Rafael Montero in the 2000 Mask of Zorro, which is not related to the 1998 Mask of Zorro, except right. that they're both Zorro films. Frank Welker was the narrator at the beginning. He has too many credits to name. He's probably the most prolific voice actor of all time with 870 credits on IMDb. But the big ones are Fred and Scooby from Scooby-Doo, Jabberjaw Shark, Megatron on Transformers, including the movies. He's a bunch of gremlin voices, Slimer and Ray on the real Ghostbusters, Kermit and Skeeter on Muppet Babies, and we heard him last as the monkey in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that's everything for Zorro the Gay Blade. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Blowout which IMDb describes like so. A movie sound recordist accidentally records the evidence that proves that a car accident was actually murder and consequently finds himself in danger. We leave you now with a trailer for Blowout. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. Yes, he says he pulled the girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. Yeah, that's what I heard just before the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. Still loose ends. Witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Terminate her. Terminate her. De Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. <laughs>